I can't tell you how many people I'll say in my DOS queue and they go, what is that? So the nerd in me is, it runs deep. Alcohol is the single most regulated commodity on the planet. And actually, that's why we love being involved in it. Uh, make a dollar out of 15 cents and then using your nonprofit skills to get three uses out of every one dollar. So I was uh, stuck in Panama's International Airport for seven days. Never accept a no from someone who didn't have the authority to give me a yes. What's up, Unfound Nation? Dan Kihanya here, your host for Founders Unfound. Thanks so much for listening in. You just heard our guest for this episode, Brooke Sinclair of Valor Imports. She's our first resident Houston entrepreneur, and she's developing technology to bring craft brands from your local neighborhood across the planet. Our episode is sponsored by the Washington Technology Industry Association, also known as the WTIA. As always, if you're excited about what we're doing with Founders Unfound, you can find our podcast on Apple, Google, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. And please follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Founders Unfound. Or go to our website, foundersunfound.com, and sign up for our updates or buy some swag. Please follow, like, and share and help us grow. Now, on with the episode. Hope you enjoy. Hello, and welcome to Founders Unfound, spotlighting the best startups you don't know yet. We bring you stories of exceptional founders from underrepresented backgrounds. This is episode seven on our series of founders from African descent. I'm your host, Dan Kihanya. Let's get on it. Today, we have Brooke S. Sinclair, founder and CEO of Velour Imports. Velour facilitates independently owned craft brands distribution around the world by way of direct relationships today and through a streamlined marketplace coming soon. Welcome to the show, Brooke, and thanks for making the time. Hi, Dan. Thank you for having me. Awesome. So let's start off with helping the listeners understand what exactly does Velour Imports do? Glor Imports is an online marketplace of beverages for the wholesale community. We are taking the digital platform and using it in the same similar fashion as Uber Eats, where importers in Latin America have a, a digital menu of selection of suppliers and manufacturers to choose from. And then they can watch their orders come towards them, just like when you watch your car come towards you on Uber Eats. That's pretty cool. And can you tell us some things about what areas you've been focused on and how how big the business has gotten or anything around the traction that you had so far? Yes. So we're still a slim team, a lean team of four. We're concentrating on the Caribbean and Central America countries right now, but we're planting some seeds so we can move down to South America in the beginning of 2021, hopefully sooner. Nice. I imagine uh, alcohol, which is primarily what you deal with, there's all kinds of rules and you probably know more about sort of the import regulations and customs than the average person in that regard. Alcohol is the single most regulated commodity on the planet. And actually, I have to admit that that's one of the reasons why we love being involved in it. Um, it's not an industry that many understand and the legalities of it. 
or how to balance those legalities is a unique trait, a rare characteristic. And we're, we're very fortunate to have worked alongside the U.S. Department of Agriculture, the Foreign Agricultural Service, the Texas Department of Agriculture, and just a list of incredible government agencies that have helped us along the way. So we are uniquely skilled in that area. And I imagine this idea that your buyers can actually see where their shipments are matters a lot, particularly in a perishable commodity (laughs) like, you know, like beer and alcohol. If it's sitting on some dock or some boat or it's stuck in some customs cage somewhere, that's going to make a big deal in terms of uh, them getting the fresh product that they're probably expecting. Huge, huge deal. And getting through customs or not just locating it, but just actually the paperwork process is something can be a little cumbersome. So that's why we're tightly working with those government entities. But a lot of that is transforming to online paper exchange. So a lot of the customs processes are already in the transformation of flowing online. Nice. Well, before we dive in more in the business, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background? Yes. So my background really is in logistics and transportation, supply chain management. My first career starting out at 19 was as a production stage manager. Like for the theater? Yes, actually, exactly. (laughs) Wow. That has a logistics aspect to it, right? Highly, highly logistics. I mean, you have to be able to load in, load out equipment, costumes, sound, stereo equipment. You have to do it correctly so that everything survives the trip. Completely. So production stage manager and logistics. So there's got to be some DNA in you that is super organized and methodical, which I admire because I am none of those things. Is there <laughs> is there some sort of aspect of who you are that you sort of identified early and said, this is the place where I need to showcase that about me? I have to say, unfortunately, it's genetic. I I just was born like that. Really awesome. (laughs) I come from a family of uh, engineers. (laughs) So my grandfather was a mechanical engineer. My mom was a computer engineer. And then my aunt is an electrical engineer. So tinkering is something we learn to do as children. I taught myself to code in the MS-DOS system, Windows DOS, back as a child, and I would play games through the DOS computer system. So the nerd in me is, it runs deep. Yeah, there you go. I mean, I guess you didn't have a choice. You couldn't become a singer or a soccer player or something. (laughs) Not a good one. (laughs) Uh, well that's great i mean i I hear that story a lot that our parents rub off on us sometimes in ways we don't expect and sometimes we don't necessarily welcome but that's great to see that there's this heritage and there was support and a shout out to ms dos i mean come on (laughs) i can't tell you how many people i'll say ms dos to and they go what is that and i just oh (laughs) (laughs) Never mind. <laughs> it was this thing right next to the phonograph. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right? <laughs> We're the old people. I'll just go sit with them. 
Exactly. So you started in this, this production stage manager, which might've been probably really thrilling when you're young. And then you realize this is not a track to probably retiring 40 years from now, at least. And so how did you make the shift into business logistics? Actually, you hit the nail on the head. So the very last show I stage managed was at the Apollo Theater. And I said, this is great. I'm in New York. I'm either going to go full steam ahead and I'm going to sleep on people's couches and this is where I'm going to be and I'm going to make it on Broadway. Or (laughs) (laughs) I could go back to school and just kind of try something different. So I went back to school and I finished my bachelor's degree. I got a, a corporate communications traveled abroad to India and, uh, for a semester, studied abroad. I got my master's degree in project management. So this really just brought home all of my nerdiness and logistical training and then found my way to preparing for my whole life. So the notion that you basically spent all of this time in your career building up the industry expertise and the domain expertise that would enable you to do Velour Imports, it makes a lot of sense, right? And so tell us how that epiphany happened around stepping out on your own and doing your own thing. Were you in the logistics for beverage businesses or how did the spark come to start Velour Imports? Uh, actually, in a word, Jesus. Uh, <laughs> I Okay. Right? <laughs> Um, I knew we drank wine. I wasn't sure. I didn't know it was the beer as well. You know, whatever's available. Right. Exactly. <laughs> He's open-minded. There you um, go. Um, I had found my way to the Houston Food Bank uh, and was running a $14 million logistic distribution uh, programs, about four different programs. So one of the main programs was the retail distribution program, where 250 different grocery stores throughout 18 counties, where we would have trucks go pick up retail donations from the Kroger's, Walmart's, Sam's Clubs, and bring back huge pallets. So I had found my way back to the transportation of perishable items and met a woman who was volunteering for her church. She was in exporting, and she had a friend in Argentina with a vineyard, and they wanted to bring the wine to the States. So I started developing develop with the theory that it was going to be an import business. Found out uh-huh. through research and development that the market for opportunity in U.S. goods in Latin America and just pretty much anywhere outside of America is huge billion dollar opportunity. And so we flipped the revenue model. And ever since we've been ironically named by lore imports, even though we primarily export. But so unpack that though, I see the, the hop, skip and the jump, but to go from being at a food bank and kind of wearing your logistics chops in all its glory to somebody saying, hey, there's this opportunity. How did you make that jump to say, wow, this is a big enough opportunity and I'm the one that needs to go fix this? 
You know, I was already searching for something when she offered me the opportunity. I was already in my early 30s and knew that nonprofit life wasn't that great. It wasn't going to be as profitable as I had hoped. Even if I was to work extremely hard, I couldn't rise. The glass ceiling would have kept me to a certain level. And so I was looking for opportunities. So when she came to me, the gypsy in me, who was a freelance production stage manager, already felt like I believed that there's more to this life than just the nine to five. So there was a, there was an itch that needed to be scratched that was already there. <laughs> yeah, that, that's quite common. You see entrepreneurs, they have this yearning. And then what happens is this presentation of opportunity and that matches with who you are, what you know, who you know, or the other scenario is you just get so pissed off that why doesn't this work? I'm going to have to go fix this. Right. Because you can't, you simply cannot take it anymore. In both of those scenarios, you get to a point where you just know that you know that you know that there's more to life and and you and your purpose than just fitting into a box. And I, I believe firmly entrepreneurs are born that way and they're separated at birth from that mission. Mm-hmm. And so it takes them sometimes longer than others to reacquaint themselves in the world with, oh yeah, that's what I've been thinking about doing all this time. So you start the company and then I mean, obviously the Latin American opportunity became the place where you focused. How did you go about sourcing the craft brands and the makers of the product, the supply side? I drew back on my good old friend, the computer, and learned how to use some inbound marketing tactics through Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn. I've contacted, those are the three main. So Instagram, really Twitter, and a few message boards, industry-specific message boards. But all of our brands have been recruited in some sort of a remote-based category. And they're excited about the opportunities. We're able to present them with serious potential and statistics about exporting and give them that extra revenue without the additional work. For your brands, or these brands, are you usually the first opportunity or the first channel for them to sell sort of beyond their region or beyond the United States? In some cases, yes. There are some other craft beer exporters. From what I know, they're primarily focused on Southeast Asia or Europe or even India. So sometimes it's their first foray and other times it's it's another opportunity at another region that they may not have uh, penetrated yet. Correct. And when you started, did you want to focus on a specific, was it just beer or were you open to anything or how did you determine? I don't know enough about the market. I'll, I'll admit to know the differences in sort of that independent sector. The craft beer market, when we were beginning and, and building the framework of the company in about 2014, 2015, Baby InBev was going through a massive purchase of craft breweries. And the market was just booming and all sorts of crazy money was happening. And after that huge buyout, I realized that the number one reason that those craft brewers sold is because they wanted to expand distribution. They wanted to be international brands. 
So it just mm. as though why can't we just open it up and democratize it and give everybody an opportunity to be an international brand if they can meet the capacity, right? And so that calling out for help and the fight to remain independent has been a huge calling and a strategic mission for us. I like that. We will take a short break to hear from our sponsor and be right back with Brooke Sinclair from Velour Imports. Washington Technology Industry Association, or WTIA, is a nonprofit that supports tech companies in Washington State, which is home to one of the most innovative tech ecosystems in the world. With enterprise companies like Microsoft and Amazon headquartered here, and engineering offices for Facebook, Google, and others, we have some of the best technical talent in the world. We're also home to many successful startups, including unicorns like Rover, Convoy, and OfferUp. WTIA provides resources and programs for companies of all sizes and stages headquartered in Washington or looking to expand here. For startups, we provide a variety of stage-appropriate resources like health insurance, business insurance, connections to resources like investors or service providers, workshops, and other support to help startups reach their potential. Go to www.washingtontechnology.org to learn more. We're back with Brooke Sinclair from Velour Imports. And before the break, Brooke, we were talking about the opportunity assessment and sort of the market focus. And you mentioned, I like this, this idea that you could help think about how independent craft brewers could become international brands and the idea that that doesn't have to come through rolling up into another company, but that you, through the power of technology, can basically introduce them beyond the shores of the United States. Yeah, and we've had some amazing reception, lots of curiosity. We've even had people, distributors in other countries, ask us for specific requests. If they you know, hear about hard seltzer or we're able to offer pasteurized versus unpasteurized craft beer, which is a huge distinction for many countries in Latin America. So we really enjoy that. What is that distinction? So pasteurized craft beer is the process of filtering, just like when you think about milk, pasteurized milk. So because right. it's more earthy, more more like just full yeast and organic products that may not last as long on the shelf. That makes sense. Makes a lot of sense, particularly with a perishable product. Shelf life is very material, especially if there's a part of that time frame that's used up with transportation. So Brooke, tell me, you are in this craft brew, craft alcohol world. Do you like beer? <laughs> I do. I'm guilty. I am guilty. Yes. So as, as the CEO, do you get to sort of sample uh, a little bit of the supply as it comes through and give a blessing on the brands as they come through? And say, yeah, this is pretty good. I think this is worthy of uh, exporting. You know, it's a hard job, but somebody's got to do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, those, those 8 a.m. taste tests uh, might be a little tough. <laughs> You know, we have to be able to speak to the product. We want to be able to say that it's good. We're still going to say that it's good, but just like a sure. wine connoisseur, if they've actually tasted it, you believe that <laughs> a little bit more, they're able to 
to say whether or not they liked it or why they liked it or things of that nature. I, I'd rather be honest. Well, tell me, is there like one of your favorites that have come through, either the way it tastes or the name or the origin story? There's got to be some fun drink or alcohol or beer that just just uh, tickles you every time you think about it. I, I don't have a favorite. And, I, you know, that's like saying which one of your children you love more. And I don't want to do that. I love them sure, all. Sure. Okay. Okay. Um, some um, that stand out, I would I would give a shout out to a year in San Francisco, or no, uh, Seattle-based Korea. Uh, so yes. Portland Cider Company, they make an amazing product. And I would say next time you're back in town, you know, stop by, tell them Brooke sent you. I will do that. We'll see what kind of VIP treatment I get. Yeah. <laughs> So t- talk to us a little bit more about this idea of a marketplace and using kind of the front end of technology to facilitate how you grow your business and add value for these brands. Well, adding value for the importer is saving huge amounts of time and money and accessibility, so, so comfort. And then on the reverse side for the brand that distributing, again, you've saved time, saved copious amounts of effort, and enjoy increased revenue. So we hope that our platform brings together a, the perfect, well, it's going to start off on perfect, but <laughs> it becomes yeah. a perfect blend of what both sides need. And what's the stage it's at now? I mean, is it up and running yet? Are you still still building it out? We're doing a uh, white glove version of the marketplace right now. So we're using the digital platform as a catalog, so to speak. We're gaining some initial feedback to letting the buyers kind of tell us how we should develop it. And then we have some additional components coming up in the next quarter. Yeah. So we're looking forward to expanding upon the features and the capabilities, but there is something there to start getting some movement going. And I imagine you've got some quote unquote regular customers who you can start to introduce this to and get feedback from. Yeah, we have gotten some incredible feedback and had incredible opportunities with the Hilton Trinidad the Grand Hyatt Bahamar and the Four Seasons in St. Kitts and some duty-free retailers and distributors out of uh, St. Kitts and Neves. And then right now we're working on a craft beer pilot program with a restaurant chain in Mexico City. So 2020 is going to be pretty busy for us. So when people hear terms like independently owned, craft, you know, especially if they're an investor, they may think, oh, that means small cottage industry. But that's probably not the case. How big a market is this space? Oh, my gosh. It, just the global craft beer market in itself is a $503 billion industry. The Latin American imported craft beer market, I believe, was $10 billion industry. Yeah. I like to drink down there. Oh my goodness. Hey, hey, let's not judge. Okay. <laughs> no, you're right. You're right. You're right. Everybody likes to have a good time. 
Hey, for all I know, that's like a weekend in Kentucky. I don't, I mean, <laughs> what do I know? <laughs> I mean, outside of America, the drinking age might be 18 or 16. Yeah, so that's that's a pretty sizable market. So uh, definitely big enough uh, for an opportunity like the one you're pursuing, for sure. Mm-hmm. And you said you have a team of four and you are based in Houston. Is that right? Yes. Have you always been in Houston or how did you end up in Houston? The company has always been based out of Houston. I myself am originally from Chicago, but my mom moved around because she worked in television as an engineer. And so we moved around. I moved here in high school. That's a bit of a change in uh, climate to go from Chicago to Houston. So good. But now it's getting too hot. It is hot in Houston. I always joke, I have a friend who lived there and it was, you sort of go from one refrigerated box to the other, right? Your air conditioned apartment or house to the car, to the office, to the grocery store, to the mall. And and you try to minimize that time when you're exposed to the ambient heat. Yeah. And you get sick from it. Right. So let's shift gears a little bit. Let's talk about fundraising. Have you raised money in the past? Have you self-funded? And are you looking to raise money in the future? We're preparing for a fundraise now. So Bloor Imports it has been primarily bootstrapped through personal savings and then self-funded through debt. And then we had a friends and family round of about $100,000. So this will be our first external invite. To bring investors in, I'm doing a seed round of 750,000, and we're reaching out to or strategically talking to uh, a few companies right now. And I'm not sure is there a investor community in Houston? There is an investor community in Houston. They're more of a later stage. So because we're in a seed area, I'm really looking to Silicon Valley and New York and actually Seattle. I think it's good to cast a wide net, especially since you're essentially an international business. You're not just a domestic service or product. So it makes a lot of sense to look for those investors who are more savvy about the international opportunity. Exactly. So have you met any investors yet? Actually, I have some meetings coming up this weekend. Oh, great. Well, good luck with that, for sure. Thank you. So what's it like to do a friends and family? I mean, one of the things that we explore a lot of times is that sometimes it's not trivial as it's sometimes portrayed to go to people that you care about and that care about you and ask them basically to bet on you. It's hard. In some aspects, everybody has bills. Everybody has to run their daily life. So for them to give and know that that money's not coming back any time soon, unfortunately, not within the next 365 days, it's amazingly humbling. And I am forever in debt. There are some people who I've promised my firstborn child to. And <laughs> I, I don't know how that's going to work out because I've promised right. multiple people. And I have some, <laughs> I'm going to be paying lots of uh, college tuition. 
think that's really an important aspect that people overlook. You know, I know for me, or we were able to raise money, but you know, my friends and family are more of the position where they want me to give them money. Wholeheartedly. Yeah. And I'm working in nonprofit. I was already maximizing my nonprofit budget. So I didn't have a huge amount of savings. And um, yeah, it's been make a dollar out of 15 cents. And then using your nonprofit skills to get three uses out of every $1. So that's good. We've actually had other entrepreneurs talk about being in the nonprofit world and it teaching you about making every dollar last. So mm-hmm. it makes a lot. So you're looking to do this seed round. Is there specific milestones that you're trying to achieve once you raise that money? Yes. So increase our broadband because it's been bootstrapped and it's such an the way it's been funded thus far my team has been mostly part-time and so i need to make them all full-time because they all have children and unfortunately have to have a certain income so in order to bring them all on board full-time and have their utmost attention this is going to allow us to do that And that's going to expand our broadband and be able to help us increase sales and revenues, uh, increase marketing, and just overall help reconfirm our credibility in Latin America. It certainly shows a lot of perseverance to pursue this business on your own dime for several years. So you have a very methodical approach to this, which is great and refreshing, actually. Thank you. We will take a short break to hear from our sponsor again and be right back with Brooks Sinclair from Velour Imports. Washington Technology Industry Association, or WTIA, is a nonprofit that supports tech companies in Washington State, which is home to one of the most innovative tech ecosystems in the world. With enterprise companies like Microsoft and Amazon headquartered here, and engineering offices for Facebook, Google, and others, we have some of the best technical talent in the world. We're also home to many successful startups, including unicorns like Rover, Convoy, and OfferUp. WTIA provides resources and programs for companies of all sizes and stages headquartered in Washington or looking to expand here. For startups, we provide a variety of stage-appropriate resources like health insurance, business insurance, connections to resources like investors or service providers, workshops, and other support to help startups reach their potential. Go to www.washingtontechnology.org to learn more. So we're back with Brooke from Velour, and we were just talking about her journey and the company's journey and where she's headed with hopefully a successful fundraise coming up shortly. Let's unpack Brooke a little bit. So in the course of five years, especially if you've been bootstrapping and you've mentioned some of the challenges of logistics, has there been kind of a low moment in this experience? Mm. Yes, I was uh, stuck in Panama's international airport for seven days. Wait, what? (laughs) There was a moment where I was stuck in Panama and uh, I couldn't get out and don't fly spirit. It's cheap for a reason. Yeah, I was stuck in Panama's international airport for seven days. And it was because your flight got canceled? You got to tell us how that happened. Seven days is a long time. (laughs) So they sent me messages saying that my flight had been rescheduled, but it turned out that they were rescheduling my connecting flight. 
So the original flight was still at 2 a.m. in that morning, but they kept telling me your your flight got rescheduled to I think like 4:30 or 5 o'clock. So I just keep thinking of that movie with Tom Hanks where yeah. he's in limbo and he's you know basically he's living in the airport. Was it like that? I literally watched that movie while I was there and learned tips on how to survive better. <laughs> So, yeah. <laughs> My mind is blown. That's amazing. So I, there must be people who were working there and they would see you every day. Like, is this woman flying back and forth to Panama every day? Or, I mean, you must have become conspicuous at some point. Panama Airport can't be that big. <laughs> no. In fact, day three, they were like, hey, you're still here. And <laughs> I was like, yeah, I'm just, you know, working it out. It's, you know. Okay. So yeah, a couple of days into it, I started making friends. You know, they were like, hey, you're still here. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You probably probably wanted to take you home and say, have pity on you. Kind of. So I assume that was on a business trip or it was in the pursuit of the company. Yes. Um, So I had begun a six country uh, sales trip. I had started down in Guatemala with the USDA and underrepresented secretary, Mr. Ted McKinney. They, the USDA had a really awesome trade mission in Guatemala. And I had just was on my way leaving Panama and had gotten an awesome opportunity to explore the country, go out to David and see a lot of places, see, visit some craft breweries, visit with some uh, distributors and set up some meetings. And I was on my way to Trinidad, uh, Antigua, St. Lucia, and the Bahamas and had a little oopsie-daisy on my way out of Panama. Wow. So luckily for all of us, that didn't dissuade you from quitting or didn't encourage you to quit (laughs) your startup right away. And I think what happens a lot is, you know, we're kind of joking about it, but I'm sure at the time it didn't seem very funny. But these episodes that happen when you're in the early stages of your startup can become sort of good anecdotes and folklore for when the company becomes successful. You can talk about those hopefully fondly. Yes. Um, Has there been a highlight? Have you have you gotten recognition or has there been like a, one big client that you've been able to land or anything like that? Man, I we have been incredibly blessed. We've been able to network our way to, you know, I mentioned before that we've had opportunities with the Hilton Trinidad, the Grand Hyatt Bahamar, the Four Seasons in St. Kitts, the Small Business Association, the SBA highlighted us as a, a success story. We got the STEP grant from the Texas Department of Agriculture, just graduated from the Houston Founders Institute just had their first cohort. And so, you know, now I have an international network of mentors and comrades. So yeah, we have been incredibly blessed. So tell us, Brooke, we all hear the stories and sometimes exaggerated, but not really the challenges and hurdles that Black women founders face, uh, at least in the tech community. Is there's been some aspects of this journey that you could identify that particularly challenging or were even present because you are a a Black woman founder? 
There are quite a few instances where the situation definitely was harder because I either was a woman or was African-American or was an outlier in some respect. So having a unique sort of engineer mind, I tend to be a very literal person. Sometimes I might rethink, you know, while somebody's speaking, I, I may look off because I'm I'm really giving thought to their words. And, you know, there are some things that are gonna make some people uncomfortable. But I try to remind people, you can't change for somebody else. You can't be taller or shorter for somebody else. So why worry about the things that you cannot change, like your skin color or the the way you think, or if you know, I have a cultural background, don't hide it to make other people feel comfortable and be comfortable in other people's discomfort. Is that an approach you've always taken or did you have to sort of learn that? Did you at first sort of try to make yourself fit in or change yourself? Or have you always been sort of this independent person? No, I definitely try to fit in. I think it's human nature. Humans, we want to fit in. We want to be a part of a group, of a pack. And that's why things like solitary confinement are so hard. So yes, I definitely tried to blend in and tried to be like everybody else. But there were some lessons that I learned. I had to learn that level of being comfortable in other people's discomfort through this journey. Is there a particular example that comes to mind? Well, let me just say that there was there was a time where person who was a resource who functioned as a portal of information thought that they had the authority to tell me no, that I could not do this business. Luckily, I already had had the experience of learning to never accept a no from someone who didn't have the authority to give me a yes. So understanding that that person was there merely to represent information, whether that information be negative or positive, I'm paying you. You're not paying me. So why would I pay you to tell me that I can't do this? I always find that really interesting when there's an imbalance in that regard, when you're the one paying for something and somehow you have to ask permission or you have to kind of risk pay somebody to tell you that you can't do something or that you don't fit or you don't pass. Do you think of yourself as a Black woman founder every day? That's a good question. I try not to. I think I'm reminded every day. It's not something that comes to my forefront. I don't necessarily just see myself because somehow there's a, a negative connotation, just even saying a Black woman founder, there's somehow a, a negative connotation. And I don't walk around with that negative connotation. I walk around thinking I'm incredibly awesome. And that seems to bother people. And you can't really tell people that you think you're awesome. Yeah, but I think you can live that way. And that's a great point about, I think this is one thing that folks who aren't from underrepresented backgrounds can't really appreciate is that whether you are conscious of it or not, Yeah, the world tries to remind you, sometimes subtly, but many other times in a very overt way. So I always find that question interesting is, you know, I'm an entrepreneur, I'm a business person, but am I, am I also carrying around these other aspects that have to be a part of me? 
So tell us, Brooke, if you were going to go back in time, say, to 10 years ago, so well before your endeavor into your startup, and you wanted to find the pre-version of yourself, kind of back to the future style, and tell yourself these couple of pieces of advice, what would you say? Woo. Well, I would say they're supposed to tell you no. Yeah. And that's, that's for everybody. Like, do not take it personally. It is their job to tell you no. And it's your responsibility to move, either respond or move beyond that. So get over yourself. Okay. You're not that important. <laughs> it's not just you. They do this to everybody who looks like you. So. <laughs> That makes sense. And I guess what, what I wouldn't, I wouldn't be doing my job if I didn't ask, have there been any organizations or people or events or experiences that you want to shout out that have been helpful to you specifically as an underrepresented founder? Right now I'm in a week four of a six week training program. I'll be announced graduating in March 6th. And beyond that, I have applied to several things in South by Southwest, several pitch competitions. And so we're looking forward to be doing that in the month of March. Previously, you know, I have to give a big shout out to Founders Institute, Station Houston, um, Here Now, and then the government entities. I cannot, cannot, cannot stop raving about the Small Business Associations, a Minority Business Development Association, these DISCORE organizations, and even HCC has been a huge resource. So I've been really immensely connected and blessed to get to network and connect with some really awesome organizations. That's interesting. Most tech companies don't shout out government entities and the small business association. So that's really encouraging that it's been a positive experience for you as kind of a, you know, more of a tech oriented company. Yeah. They've been with me through the entire development process and have opened more doors than I could ever imagine. That's good to hear. Well, we're just about to wrap up, Brooke, but before we do, I'll ask if you want to share a way to get a hold of you or if you want people to follow you, if you have anything coming up that you want people to know about, what would you tell people if they want to find out more about Brooke S. Sinclair and Valour Imports? Come and find Valour Imports online at valourimports.com and take a look at our website. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And come find us, come look for us at South by Southwest coming up mid-March, March 14th, I think is that week. And uh, we would love to see you. If you have any questions or concerns, give us a shout out, an email or email is the best just because we're all remote, but give us a phone call or anything, just DM and, and let us know if you have any questions or any thoughts, or if you're interested in learning how you can be on our website. Or if you're interested in learning more about a brand that you see on the website. Well, this has been really a lot of fun. I really appreciate your time, Brooke. And so thank you so much for making the, the time to spend with us today. Thank you. This has been awesome. And I, I look forward to hearing that's coming out. Thanks so much for listening to the show. We'd like to thank our guest, Brooke Sinclair, and our sponsor, the WTIA. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Founders Unfound. 
This podcast was produced by Dan Quijana. Our music was composed by Ian Barter, Jason Donnelly, C.J. Harris, Dennis Katinko, and Juan Mares. I am Dan Quijana. You've been listening to Founders Unfound. <laughs>